your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Let's pray together. Father, you are God, you are holy, and there is none as you are. As we pause these moments to reflect upon the truth of the beauty of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you might, by the working of your Spirit, use your Word in every heart and every life of all those who've gathered here this day, and all those who will hear by other means in the days to come, where we ask that your Word may do its perfect work in each and every heart by the power of your Spirit. Lord, even as our text, we will see this morning that we rest not in our ability, we rest not and depend and rely not upon our strength, upon our humanly uh, wisdom, but Father, we rest and trust in the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus and the power of His gospel to which you have given us stewardship. So may we be faithful as the followers and servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, and may you our Heavenly Father, receive the glory in and through all things, for it is all due unto your name. We pray this in Christ's precious name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you and be seated. For several weeks, as most of you are aware, we have examined this mystery of which Paul wrote in chapter 1. And he, in verses, uh, the first verses as well of chapter 2, as we began to look at last week in verses one through three specifically, in which in this portion of the text, the latter part of chapter one and the beginning verses of chapter two, Paul addressed uh, this mystery, uh, which of course, as we have seen very clearly, I don't want to belabor the point, but this mystery of the gospel to the Gentiles is that mystery. It's not just, if you will, salvation in a general sense of which Paul is speaking, but he's specifically referencing the salvation that God has purposed to the Gentiles, that God is determined to redeem a people which were not a people, a people which were not called by his name. He, were gonna, he was going to call into himself. And this is that mystery, as, as we see testified throughout the Old Testament and yet not understood. Again, the word mystery, as you recall, does not simply mean something that is mystical, but rather it is something that may even be declared and known yet not understood. And so the mystery is that this declaration of God's eternal redemptive purpose to save this people who were not a people, the people that were not part of the covenant relationship with God throughout the Old Testament was declared consistently throughout the Old Testament by many of the prophets, and yet the people were too blind. They were spiritually unable to comprehend and understand these truths. And so in the New Testament, we find in Christ, this mystery is now manifested. And Christ, of course, is the beauty of this mystery, as we know. And we've been examining this. So we began by looking at the wonder of the mystery in verse 26 of chapter 1. He says, the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest. Then we saw the riches or the glory of this mystery. He goes on in verse 27 to state, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, the confidence of glory. Not only glory as in eternity, but glory, the very glory of God that is present among us because of his indwelling spirit, because of Christ living within us. Then the third, we looked at the stewardship of the mystery in verse 28, and as well following into verse 29, Paul writes, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So in verse 28, I explained to you that Paul is 
is here giving us a nutshell of the stewardship of the gospel. And he is saying, first of all, we preach, we proclaim a warning to all men, the bad news that precedes the good news, and that is that men are under the wrath of God, under the condemnation of God, and that they, they must be saved. And then he says, teaching every man. What are we teaching every man? Teaching every man the truth of the sufficiency of the Savior, the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that God has provided for us all that is needed, all that is necessary for our, our, our sinful condition, to remedy the, the condemnation that we are under, God has provided that. Then he goes on to say, and present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And this is discipleship. He's saying that we might teach that others might mature and they might grow in the faith and be rooted and grounded and settled in the truth of Christ. And so last week we began our study, as I mentioned, of the second chapter to this epistle in which Paul expressed his concern that men may neglect the treasures of the mystery. He says in verse 1, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. The noun conflict, as I've mentioned, used in verse 1, means struggle or fight. So Paul here expressed that he was struggling or fighting to make known the mystery of the gospel and to ensure that believers did not neglect the wonder, the riches, and the stewardship of this mystery. As I pointed out to you last week as well, Paul concluded this epistle confirming his desire to continue to proclaim the gospel and his commitment, also declaring his commitment to the gospel at all costs. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, we read, Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul here in the conclusion of his letter, the last chapter of this epistle, as it's been divided into chapters and verses, in the last chapter, Paul here expresses a, a desire for others to pray for him, that God might continue to open the door of utterance to him, that he might be bold in the gospel at all costs, even as one who is in bonds, as a genuine prisoner, a literal prisoner, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul further expressed, too, that his desire for men to experience the treasures of this mystery in verses 2 and 3 of this second chapter, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love and into all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. Here he says it again, this mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Such wisdom and knowledge which had been hid from ages past. Declared, it was, they were told this, but they could not understand it. They could not comprehend it. It is now manifested. It is explained to us and revealed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was sent by God the Father. The benefits of understanding these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as Paul says, he, he speaks about that their hearts be comforted, being knit together in love, unto all the riches of full assurance of understanding, verses 2 and 3, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So these treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which Paul mentions, that are hid in Christ, are explained to us, to some degree, at least, at least summarized, in verse 2. The benefits of understanding these treasures of wisdom and knowledge include the truths Paul stated in this second verse. He said, first of all, that they might have comforted hearts. 
Second, they might be united in love. And third, that they would have a confidence and understanding. So here you find the treasures that are in Christ uh, of this comfort from God, a unity provided by His Spirit, and a confidence in understanding because it is His Spirit that teaches us. So this portion of Paul's epistle, as we read this morning, verses 4 through 7, continues with further warning, with an acknowledgement, and an exhortation. And Paul first warns the Colossian believers concerning those who would attempt to persuade them from the truth of Christ in verse 4. Then he follows that warning with an acknowledgement of the believer's steadfast faith in Christ. And then in verse 5, he concludes, in verse 5, I'm sorry, and concludes with an exhortation for them to continue in like manner in verse 6. So you find the warning in verse 4, you find an acknowledgement in verse 5 of their steadfastness in faith, and you find as well an exhortation for them to continue in such like manner in verse 6. Now such acknowledgement and exhortation should be received with solemnity and joy. To be more specific, the reader should receive the truth of Paul's acknowledgement joyfully and his warning and exhortation solemnly. And this morning we will spend our time considering really just the first of these three in verse 4, in which we find Paul's warning of the deceivers. Look at what he says in verse 4. Now, we dealt with this to some degree already last week concerning Paul's desire and his concern in relation or in regards to these believers who may neglect the treasures of the knowledge and wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. He's saying that there is always this danger that believers in Jesus Christ neglect these truths. Listen, to be rooted and grounded is a, as believers in Christ is a time-consuming process. It, it, it requires that we are in the Word of God, reading and studying the Word of God. And we're going to look more into that in a moment. That we grow in the grace and knowledge and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so many people would much rather dismiss that, neglecting the treasures of knowing Christ in such a fellowship simply to live in a superficial manner with no depth and no root whatsoever. And Paul says, I'm concerned for you that you, you've just neglected the depths of the truth of the riches of Jesus. And you're satisfied with just this, the, the, really, potentially satisfied with a superficial knowledge or easily persuade, easily deceived by persuasive speech. And so Paul continues this morning in this verse, verse 4, And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now within this verse, Paul explains that what he has said, when he says, in this I say, so what he has said, and for that matter what he has yet to say, is to be considered as a warning against all those who would attempt to turn these believers away from the preeminence of Christ and the power of the gospel. Remember, Colossians 1 Paul is emphasizing the preeminence of Jesus Christ, that Christ is the very image of the invisible God, that he is preeminent, he is above all, before all, and over all. And he's saying that this is the preeminent Christ. He's saying, and and I am concerned that you might be distracted from the preeminent Christ by persuasive speech. And that they therefore also would be turned from the power of the gospel. Listen, if you fail to see 
Jesus as preeminent, you will fail to see that it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The moment that you don't recognize it as Christ who is preeminent, then you're going to attempt to manipulate the gospel in such a manner to where you think you can improve upon it or better it to reach people with the gospel, which is no longer the gospel, but a perversion of the true. And the moment we pervert the gospel, we've removed the power of the gospel because it is the gospel that is the power of God into salvation, Romans 1.16. And so here Paul is saying you must keep understand, recognize Christ to be preeminent. You don't keep him there. You recognize and submit to his preeminence. And by the way, we'll get into this later, not today, but he says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And Paul emphasizes the truth that you receive Christ as what? Lord. That's how you received him. He is Lord. So walk accordingly as the fact that he is Lord. And if he's Lord, then guess what else he is? He is preeminent. So all this still ties into the preeminence of Jesus. And Paul is expressing this truth and saying, Christ is preeminent. Acknowledge him to be who he is. You don't make him preeminent. You don't make him first in your life. You don't make him over your life. You just simply recognize who God has declared him to be and submit to this truth of who he is. And in doing so, then we know the gospel is the power of God and we will not sway from it either because we'll be convinced and rooted and grounded in the truth that it is the gospel and the power of the gospel by which men are transformed and as well we as believers are conformed to the image of God. So Paul's warning is, do not be beguiled by enticing words. And the verb beguile means to deceive to delude. And to delude is to con, or to hoodwink, or to dupe, or to fool. And the adjective enticing means persuasive speech. And there are three considerations Paul makes within this one verse. First of all, we have to be aware that there are deceivers present. He says, lest any man. So among us, Around us, and I'm not necessarily saying among us within this body of Christ, but I'm saying among us in the world in which we live, all around us, on the radio, on the internet, on YouTube, on podcasts, on vlogs, on TV, are numerous people who are attempting to persuade and deceive and to con others concerning the preeminence of Jesus Christ. It's everywhere. So there are deceivers present, lest any man. Second, they intentionally attempt to deceive. This is not some, something that happens by, by happenstance, so to speak, coincidence, so to speak, but they should be valued. This is intentional. Now, understanding, there are people who deceive who probably don't even realize they are deceiving, but they still are intentionally deceiving because they themselves are deceived. So it's not that every deceiver is out there saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see who I can deceive today. But they're doing it all the same intentionally because they themselves are under such deception to, re, to, to do away or neglect the treasures of the depths of Christ and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And so hence they deceive and do so intentionally. And then third, Paul says that they convincingly do so with persuasive speech, with enticing words. This is a very interesting statement which Paul makes. And there are other passages of Scripture which address the same matter. Within this particular warning, Paul is explaining <clears throat> that among the Gnostics of the day, which we've already seen, there were many well-educated, smooth-talking, and even thought-provoking men 
who would do their best to deceive and fool the Colossian believers concerning the faith. Who would desire to to persuade them that they need to not look to the preeminence of Jesus. Ephesians 4.14, Paul refers to the Lord providing the church with men who would teach and ground the church in the truth, and then continues by saying this, that we henceforth, for this reason, be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, like like a, a boat that's on the sea, and the wind is blowing, and it's got its sail up, and it's just being blown all about because it's just being tossed about by the waves and by the wind. He says, and notice what he, how he defines this, by the slight of men <clears throat> and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. This is intentional. It's, it's purposeful. They desire to deceive and to turn even the church's attention away from the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Listen, if people really see Christ as preeminent, if the church sees Christ as preeminent, then the gospel will always be enough. Always. Without all the added stuff. It is Christ's word. It is Christ and the gospel. The revealed Christ from his word. This is the all-sufficient provision of God. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, Paul writes, Oh, Timothy... Keep that which is committed to thy trust. And keep is to to guard and protect, to cherish that which is committed to your trust. Avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you or with thee. Amen. Here in 1 Timothy 6, Paul is saying, Timothy, avoid profane and vain babblings. Avoid that which is useless. He says profane. Profane is referring to something that is is worthless. Vain is that which is empty. In oppositions of science, science is referring so falsely called, he says, which is referring to uh, some sense of knowledge is what is being referenced here. With the many references of Scripture, there are also many misconceptions or misunderstandings concerning that which Paul states. Paul writes just four verses after this morning in Colossians 2.4 and Colossians 2.8. Listen to what he says. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And such men exist today, just as they did in Paul's day. However, the church's response has drastically changed from what it once was. And we're going to look at that a little bit and see, see how this unfolds. So Paul is saying here that do not be spoiled, do not be perverted through philosophy and vain deceit from anything and everything and anything that would, that would misdirect you from the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is referring to here because he goes on to explain and not after Christ. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that we... It's not beneficial to have any knowledge apart from that which is biblical. That's not what Paul is saying. But he's saying, do not be perverted and caught up in that which distracts you from the preeminent Christ. But rather to look to him. The tragedy within the modern day church 
concerning the presence and persuasive tactics of such men, as Paul mentions in this warning in verse 4 and other passages, is the overwhelming response of the modern-day church. In other words, today, rather than having answers derived from a deep-rooted understanding and commitment to the teaching of the Scriptures, too many within the church attempt to dismiss such opposition as though it doesn't exist by either ignoring it or they attempt to uh, use the word faith, literally the word faith, in an attempt to avoid defending the faith to which they claim to hold. For example, someone saying, well, I just believe by faith. That is anything but an answer to the opposition or questions. Furthermore, such a statement is usually a self-confessed inability to answer the question and or an unwillingness to engage in defending the faith. So questions are asked, statements are made, and people, oh, I just believe by faith. That's never an answer. Now, it may be true you do believe by faith, but that's not an answer. And Paul is not saying, oh, just never give anybody an answer. No, we are to be rooted and grounded in the truth so that we can give answers. I'm reminded, apologia is the word in the Greek, and it's that from which we derive our word apologetics. And apologetics, of course, is defense of the faith. And there's different types of apologetics, different, different modes or means or methods of it, if you will. But yet, in apologetics, what it, people say, well, well, you know, I just believe. Well, the Scripture tells us, Peter says, of course, as you are aware, and he even says, as we mentioned previously in Colossians, that in that passage in Peter in which he mentions that we are to be ready to give every man answer of the reason of the hope that is within us, when he makes that statement, he is saying, apologia, that we are to defend the faith, to give answer in this regard. But he's also saying that it's through the, through the persecution of the sufferings of Christ that doors are open by which we may do so, as we saw in our previous studies. Also, we find other passages that deal with this very truth. Multiple times in Scripture, the word apologia is translated in answer or, or reason or whatever. Different, different types of, of uh, different, different words are used in the English words to translate that word, which is still the same word. To the, it's the defense of the faith. The point is, we're not defending about the faith by ignoring the opposition. That's never the answer. You're not, you're not standing rooted and grounded in truth by acting as though there is no opposition, nor are you, are you rooted and grounded in truth, properly defending the faith and being a good steward of the gospel if all you can say is, I just believe by faith, I just believe this by faith. That's not, that's not giving an answer. And so when Paul talks about the philosophy and the traditions of men, he's not saying that we aren't to have an understanding of where others are coming from. What he is saying is that we are never to be distracted from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preeminence in the midst of any other knowledge we may gain. One of the things that Garrett and I have talked about many times and within the church, and it is true, is that there seems to be, no, there doesn't seem to be, there just is, a hatred within modern-day American Christianity by large, a hatred for intelligence within the body of Christ. And that's a shame. That is not, in fact, the reality is this. If anyone should be teaching anyone anything, it should be the church that is teaching. Because every other perspective is built upon a false premise and foundation. So who should really be teaching? The church. If you don't believe that, look at our school systems and see where we are. And the foolishness and nonsense. And so this neglect to even acknowledge the, the opposition or this dismissal and just say, well, I just believe by faith and that's all there is to it. That is not an answer and that's not being rooted and grounded in truth. 
So we must be this. And again, Paul is not saying, remain ignorant, close your, plug your ears, close your eyes, and just stay in an echo chamber and just listen to what you always listen to. No, Paul is saying, in all that you may learn and all you may grow in knowledge, never allow you to be distracted from the preeminent Jesus. As a matter of fact, we see that exemplified in Acts chapter 17. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 17? Two words. Mars Hill. And Paul is approaching all these Athenians that are there in Greece, and he says to them, they have all these altars to these gods, and they have one altar to an unknown God. And what does Paul understands what they're doing? He comes and says to you, Oh, I'll tell you about this unknown God that you worship. He's not ignoring the fact that they worship this God they don't know. They're wanting to cover, hey, these people, they are diligent. They're wanting to make sure no stone goes unturned. They're saying, if there is a God out there we're not aware of, then we're going to worship him too, which was not the worship of him at all. But Paul says, hey, I'll declare him unto you. I'll tell you who this God is. And then he does so. There's other examples as well where Paul, clearly, I'm just going to mention this. I forgot the references, but they're there. You can find, and I've mentioned them before, where Paul actually references the philosophers of his day to explain and further expound upon the truth of the gospel and the knowledge of Christ. Isn't that interesting? So Paul understood these things. He's not saying, close your eyes, plug your ears. He's saying, never be distracted, even by the most persuasive speech from the preeminent Jesus. And let me tell you, the only way that will ever happen is that you first be rooted and grounded in Christ and in His truth. Many have used Paul's writings, such as that in 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, as an excuse to refuse to engage in any meaningful defense of the truth of the gospel. Nonetheless, we are to faithfully, without wavering, hold to the tenets of the faith, which were once and for all time delivered or handed down to the saints in Jude verse 3. And we are to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul instructed Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 12, when he said, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Whereunto thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. So Paul is not saying, find your safe place as a Christian and go hide in your closet and ignore all the opposition and just close your eyes and your ears to everything else. No, he's saying, fight the good fight, acknowledging the preeminence of Christ, holding to the tenets of faith, lay hold on eternal life, grasp eternal life. Be rooted and grounded, unshaken, unmoving. Now, obviously, we declare to men the simplicity of the gospel. You say, how does that reconcile? And we depend totally on the power of, the, uh, of God in using the gospel to spiritually transform lives by His Spirit, as Paul testified to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 17-24. And remember something, Paul is now talking to a spiritually immature church in which he says, you're carnal, and I have to feed you milk in chapter 3. I'm giving you milk instead of meat because you can't digest it because you're just a baby. So when Paul wrote this, he's saying to them, listen, the only thing you can take and the only thing you can stomach is the very simplicity of the gospel, which we proclaim to men because it's the power of God unto salvation. But we also are to be ready to give answer to every man that asketh. 
And so we proclaim the simplicity of the gospel while being prepared to get into the depths of the truths of Christ while proclaiming and acknowledging and submitting our lives to his lordship and his preeminence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17-24, Paul said, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. So he's saying, I don't pervert the simplicity of the gospel by, by trying to impress others with the words that I say or with swelling words or enticing words. He said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. As it, or for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both the Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So while we are to proclaim the simplicity of the gospel, we are also to engage the skeptic with the truth of the revealed Christ. God's revelation of God to man through his word and the testimony of his son, our Lord Jesus. Paul explained to Timothy, 2 Timothy three fifteen and 16, you know these verses. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more un godliness. Paul further instructed Timothy in verse 16, after he has said in verse 15 we just read, to be diligent in the word, that he might rightfully and skillfully use it as a good and faithful steward of the truth. He then in verse 16 says, but shun, avoid profane, worthless and vain or empty babblings, chatter and talk, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Paul's instruction is not that Timothy disengage from defending the faith and proclaiming the truth, but rather that he not be ensnared or entrapped into worthless argument concerning such truth. So the instruction here is not that we disengage from attacks on the truth, but rather that we actively engage by becoming more so grounded as we grow in our understanding of the faith and we remain bold in the truth of the gospel. The only, hear me please, the only antidote to the skeptic, is the power of the gospel. That is it. But in order to rightfully declare and proclaim such a gospel, we must be rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel and as well in being rooted and grounded, be able and ready to give answer. Paul did not go to the Athenians and start talking about how, well, I know you probably aren't worshiping this God and that God or this God. He says, I see all your altars, altars to all these gods, and you have one to the unknown God. He said, I'm going to declare to you who this God is. Again, Paul was one who was educated in, in worldly wisdom. Paul was one who had been to the best schools. Paul was one who was intelligent. Paul was one who was articulate. Paul was one who was capable of debate. And you see that really in his letters in reality because that's what he does. He presents often their arguments knowing what they are and then answers them in his letters. 
But notice what Paul does. He, doesn't, he, he uses the opportunity to declare the truth of the gospel in that moment. So the only antidote to the skeptic is the power of the gospel. And here's what I mean by that. Look, you, you could become persuasive in your own speech, even as a believer, to the point to where maybe you could start persuading people's reasoning to say, oh, well, I've never thought of that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But hear me, you will never change that person's heart. Are we to use intellect? Absolutely. Remember something. And the church has this totally backwards today. And it's obvious when you look around. People view individual, individuals in humanity as though God created us emotional beings with intelligence. But that is not true. God created us intelligent beings with emotion. And we are to be sober-minded and somber and not overrun by emotion, though we have emotions. But think about the church today, by large, America especially. You know what we've done? We've become overrun by emotion without engaging in intelligence at all. So we approach the Word of God in truth and critically, meaning not criticizing, I'm talking about critically approaching it in thought and reason, and do so with the discernment of the Spirit of God within us that we might be rooted and grounded in truth so that we not be persuaded by the smooth talk of the deceiver. The bottom line is this, left to yourself... Hear me, please. And I, this is me too. Myself and you alike. If we were left to ourselves, we can be deceived. And left to your own wisdom, left to your own intelligence, left to your own reasoning, you know what you can still be? Deceived. But you know who guides us in all truth? The Spirit of God who dwells within us. So why would we neglect? Here we're talking about, remember previously, Paul leads into all this by talking about. I'm fearful you would neglect the treasures of Christ and of this mystery. When we forsake the study of the Word of God being rooted and grounded in truth, we are neglecting the treasures of the depths and riches of this mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. In the face of opposition, the answer is to be rooted and grounded in truth of God's word that we might then proclaim the wisdom of God in a world that is full of skeptics. Second Timothy 4, 2-4, Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, proclaim. Preach simply means to proclaim. That's all he's saying. He's saying teach. He tells us to teach and instruct, but he's saying proclaim, proclaim. That's all it means, proclaim. Proclaim the word, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. What is doctrine? Teaching. He's saying, proclaim the word of God in teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They heap to themselves teachers who say to them what they want to hear. Give them what they want, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. Again, this last verse is so important for you to understand. There is a, an active voice verb and a passive voice verb in this one verse together. He first says, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth. That is active voice. They turn their ears away. They reject truth. Now they're born rejecting truth, but they will continue to, and they just will not hear it. And then the next statement, and this does not clearly 
define the day in which we live, as it always has, but we see it as a reality in our world in which we live, and shall be passive voice turned unto fables. Paul is simply telling Timothy, listen, they're going to reject truth, they're not going to hear sound doctrine, they're going to get teachers who teach them what they want to hear, and then he says, by turning away from the truth, by rejection of the truth in a willful and willing manner, he said, they are turned then unto fables, simply meaning this, once you reject truth, all you have left are lies. That's it. So when you willingly reject truth, guess what you're left with? You're left with your own wisdom, your own intelligence, your own reasoning, your own rationalization, and, and, and the lies of the world and of Satan himself. And that's what you have. So may we not neglect the treasures of this mystery. But may we be aware, as Paul gives warning here in this fourth verse of this second chapter of Colossians, and he says that there are those men who will beguile you with enticing words. Beware of this. Be made. I say this so that this not happen to you. I've said everything I've said thus far, and that which I'm about to give you and teach you, I am declaring it to you so that you are not deceived. Because we can be deceived. It's possible. But there's an answer to that. There's an antidote to deception. You know what that is? Being rooted and grounded in the truth. Might I say to you, it's important you be rooted and grounded in the truth, not only not only that you might declare to others such truth, but you've got to be able to answer the questions yourself when confronted. Else you may be deceived. So you've got to be able to answer them from Scripture, or you're left to your own reasoning, which will lead you wrongly. So maybe be rooted, maybe be grounded, not neglecting the treasures of Christ. Wisdom. And by the way, what are those treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Wisdom is to my godly wisdom, and the knowledge is that, of course, of understanding. But it's also, if you will, not only having understanding, but living in that understanding. Wisdom and knowledge together. So may we not neglect to be faithful to the gospel, in the gospel, as stewards of the gospel. Beware. Be warned. There are people all around us deceiving who will continue to do so. And the only way you will not be deceived is to be rooted and grounded in truth by the working of God's Spirit in your life. Father, we thank you for your word and for the warning.